If you were to ask me this morning, what is your favorite chapter in all the Bible, it would be this chapter, Revelation chapter 5, the lion, the lamb, and the world. We read a portion of it a moment ago, but in preparation for our study, let me read now verse 1 down through verse 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. When I was in graduate school uh, pursuing my Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Arlington, as you would expect at a secular university like that, I encountered a wide variety of worldviews. Now, there were people in that graduate program just like me. Bible-believing evangelical Christians committed to the Bible as God's infallible and inerrant word, committed to a supernatural worldview. Uh, there were others in the program that referred to themselves by the phrase neo-orthodox. They actually said, well, I'm a neo-orthodox Christian. You say, what is that? Well, bottom line, they don't believe the Bible is the word of God, but they believe the Bible can become God's Word to you in kind of a mystical or subjective experience. Now, they believe the Bible contains error, but God can still use an error-filled book to do something in your life. Then there were others in the program who, without any apology, said, well, I'm a liberal Christian. And by that they meant, I'm not sure about supernatural things. I'm not sure, for example, that Jesus was virgin-born. I'm not sure that Jesus walked on water. I'm not sure that Jesus even rose from the dead. But I do believe that the moral teachings of the Bible, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, it would be a better world if we lived by those teachings that you find in the Bible. So they still wanted to hang on to some vestiges of Christianity, though they rejected out of hand almost all of the supernaturalism. Then, of course, there were people from other worldviews altogether. I had classmates that were Hindu. I had classmates that were Buddhist, classmates that were Muslim. Uh, I had a number of classmates that were Jewish, and I had classmates. In fact, most of my professors were either agnostic or they were atheist. Most of them, by the way, were former frustrated, angry Roman Catholics or fundamentalist. And somewhere along the line, they had had a bad experience with religion, and they had rejected it out of hand. I remember taking a class in rhetoric taught by a professor who, without any apology, let the class know that he was an atheist, that he believed in no absolute truth, and that he believed that, uh, indeed, truth was hardly able to be grasped at all. One night in class, and I don't remember the subject, but one night in class, he was talking, and a young lady raised her hand, and she said, well, Dr. So-and-so, what do you think the future holds for mankind? And this professor stepped back and got quiet for a moment, and then he said, well, if I'm honest, I'm not very optimistic. When I study history, I discover that man does not treat man very well. When I look at the contemporary world, it seems to me that not much has changed. 
And then he made this statement. Now, it's been over 30 years ago, but I still remember it like it was yesterday. He said, I believe the future holds for mankind certain destruction and potential annihilation. I am not very hopeful about the future. Now, let me be honest with you this morning. If I were an atheist or an agnostic like that professor, if I believed, as the Humanist Manifesto, for example, says, that man must ultimately save himself, I'm not very hopeful or optimistic either. And yet that's why Revelation chapter 5 is such a precious precious chapter to me in God's Word, because if I were to summarize for us this morning what Revelation 5 is all about, I think I could do it with a little song that I was taught as a little boy in a Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia, and that song, speaking of our God, simply says this, He has got the whole world in His hands. This world is not out of control because there is today in heaven a lamb that is seated on a throne and he is guiding and he is directing and he is orchestrating all things to its perfect and intended end. And so what I want us to do this morning is walk through these 14 verses and I want us to consider the theme, the lion, the lamb, and the world and answer the question, why is it that Jesus Christ is worthy of all honor, glory, praise, and adoration? Number one, he is worthy because Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Now, verse one begins by showing us that the Lord has a plan. Look at it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, you really need to read Revelation chapter 4 along with Revelation chapter 5 because basically what you have is a single vision of two parts. In chapter 4, the focus is on God the Father and the doctrine of creation. Chapter 5, the focus is on God the Son and the doctrine of redemption. And the argument of the book of Revelation is this both by creation and redemption. God has the right to do with this world as he pleases. He made it. He died for it. And so this world belongs to him. And in chapter 4, God the Father is seated on a throne. So I saw in the right hand, in the Semitic mind, the hand of authority, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a word, by the way, that occurs more than 40 times in Revelation. That's why some theologians say Revelation is a throne book. Well, in the place of authority, the throne, and in the right hand, the hand of authority, John says, I saw a scroll. And this scroll is filled with information because it is written within, it is written on the back. Furthermore, it is perfectly sealed up because it is sealed with seven seals. Now, if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you know it's a highly symbolic book. Numbers in particular almost always stand for something symbolic, and the number seven may be the most important of all because it almost always means that which is perfect, that which is complete, or that which is full. So, one more time, in the place of authority, in the hand of authority, John sees a scroll filled with information, and it is perfectly sealed up. Now, that then demands a question. What is the scroll that's in the right hand of God the Father as he sits on the throne in heaven? And again, theologians go all over the place. 
Some believe it is to be identified with Ezekiel chapter 2 and a book of woes. Others have said it is the last will and testament of Jesus. Others have said it is a title deed to the earth. Others, like myself, think there may be a connection with Daniel chapter 12 because in Daniel 12, an angel comes to Daniel gives him a vision of the end, of the end time. But before Daniel can unfold the vision, the angel says, Stop. Seal up the vision until the time of the end. And so I think that what was denied Daniel is now actually given to the Apostle John. But having said all of that, I think there's an even more simple explanation, and that is this. The scroll in the right hand of God the Father is the remainder of the book of Revelation. You say, why would you say that? Well, in a moment, we're going to see that God the Son comes to God the Father, and he takes the scroll out of his right hand. Then beginning in chapter 6, the seals begin to be broken, and the scroll is unfolded, and what then comes out is Revelation 6 through Revelation 22. Now, This is not a prophecy conference, nor do we have the time. But if I were to quickly give you the the Reader's Digest version of Revelation 6 through 22, what would we discover? I think we would see this. Number one, this scroll is a book of judgment. Number two, this scroll is a book of salvation. And number three, this scroll is a book of restoration. So it's a book of judgment. It's a book of salvation. And it is a book of restoration. You say, why would you say that? Well, in Revelation 6, we see the seal judgments. In Revelation 8 and 9, there are trumpet judgments. In Revelation 16, there are bowl judgments. And brothers and sisters, if the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, in the last seven years of history, one half of the world's population will be wiped out as a result of the righteous and just judgment of God. In other words, there is coming a day when the day of grace comes to an end. And God is going to pour out his righteous judgment on a world that has rejected him. So it is a horrific book of judgment. But at the same time that God is pouring out his judgment, God is going to be drawing people from all over the world to himself. You say, why do you say that? Well, over in chapter 7, In verses 1 through 8, we see that God in the future is going to seal 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. I believe it's an evidence in perfect harmony, for example, with Romans chapter 11 and Zechariah chapter 12 and Jeremiah chapter 31. God is not through with the Jew. And there's coming a day at the end of time, as Paul says in Romans 11, there's coming a day when all of Israel will be saved. And so God has not cast Israel aside permanently and forever, and we can indeed look forward to a massive turning of Jewish persons to faith in Christ at the end of the age. But God will not just be saving Jews. He will also be saving the nations. Just for a moment, take your Bible and turn over one page, perhaps you don't even need to, to chapter 7 and look at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this, after what? The vision of the 144,000. After this, I looked and behold, now watch this, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were clothed in white robes, the garments of salvation. They had palm branches in their hands for celebration. And crying out with a loud voice, they said, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Many times people refer, especially missiologists, will refer to verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 7 as the great missionary promise. You say, why? Because God has promised us. God has promised us that in heaven there will be people there from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Every single people group will be represented in heaven for all of eternity. God promises, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. So here's the deal. God is going to bring the nations to himself. Will you and I be a part of God's great global plan for salvation? Or will we be sitting on the sideline watching? It's going to happen. In other words, let's be clear this morning. God does not need your help. He doesn't need my help. He allows us out of grace and kindness to be a part of of what he's doing. So he is going to reach the nations with the gospel. The issue is, am I going to be a part? And if I am, and I pray that you are, well, what is my part? Is it to pray? Is it to give? Is it to go? Is it to do all three? Whatever it is, we all want to join hands with God because he is going to accomplish something wonderful as he brings the nations to himself. So yes, it's a book of judgment, but it's also a wonderful book of salvation. But then number three, it's also a book of restoration. I doubt there are any chapters in the Bible more precious than Revelation chapter 21 and 22 because there we read of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And folks, every time I ever perform a funeral for a Christian, I will always read Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and verse 5. What is the new heaven going to be like? What is the new earth going to be like? What is the new Jerusalem going to be like? Well, here's just a a, a snapshot, verse 4 of Revelation 21. Our God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. So we're going to see in the remainder of Revelation, judgment, salvation, and as I like to say, Eden regained, and more in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now, all of that is in the scroll in the right hand of God the Father. He has a plan. But also, number two, heaven has a problem. Look again at chapter 5 and verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, and here's the call, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Here's the response, no one, no human, no angel in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so for just a fleeting moment, it looks like God's plan is not going to come to fruition. And John is is heartbroken. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly. He is crying out of control because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or 
to look into it. But then we see that Jesus Christ is Lord and worthy because of his power. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop crying, John. Weep no more. Now you say, who are the elders, Danny? Well, there are 24 of them. Uh, We meet them in chapter 4. I think they represent uh, the redeemed of all the ages. All right? So one of the redeemed, represented by the elders, says to John, stop crying, John. Weep no more. Behold, now look at this. Number one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, a messianic title from Genesis chapter 49. Number two, the root of David, found both in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. You say, what do they mean, Danny? Well, as the lion, of course, he's the great king. As the root of David, he is the descendant of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if he is the root of David, then he is the source of all the blessings that come to God's people through God's Messiah. So, 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 so John, don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here. The root of David, he is here. And he's conquered. He's overcome. And he can open the scroll, and he can open its seven seals. And that is why Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. He can do what no one else can do to bring God's plan to its appropriate end. Now, number two, Jesus Christ is also worthy because he is the Lord of victory. That is the theme of verse 6 and verse 7. Now, let's set the stage. You and I have been told, look for the lion, a kingly figure. Look for the root of David, a very strong individual, but that's not what we see. And John unfolds the vision very dramatically here in verse 6. Look at it. And between the throne and the four living creatures, angelic beings of worship, and among the elders, I saw not the lion of the tribe of Judah, I saw not the root of David. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The theme of the lamb is one of the most important themes in all the Bible. We could actually spend several hours this day just talking about it and tracing it from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I won't do that, but let me highlight some things for our purposes this morning. Number one, the word lamb that John uses here is a very particular word in the language of the Greek New Testament. It's the Greek word arneos. That word occurs 29 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times it's a reference to Jesus. Now just hang on to that. 29 times you'll see the word lamb. 28 times it's a reference to Jesus. Only one time in the New Testament does the word arneos occur outside of Revelation, and that's in John chapter 21. There where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my what? Lambs. It's the only time the word arneos occurs outside of Revelation. So it's a very significant word, very important word in the last book of the Bible. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, occurs 29 times. 28 times it's a reference to Jesus, which means one time it isn't, and it is one of the most instructive passages, I believe, in the Bible. So, for the last time, take your Bible and turn over to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 13, 
verse 11. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Stay with me now. I know that you're giving us a lot of stuff, Danny. I know it. You can get the tape and go back and listen to it a dozen times, and it'll all begin to fall into place, but let me give it my best shot, okay? When you come to Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, and let me say it this way. I don't care this morning what your eschatological system is. I don't care if you are premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. I don't care. Well, actually, I do, but for my purposes this morning, it won't matter. I don't care if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, partial rapture, pre-wrath rapture. I don't care. We can all agree on this. In Revelation 12 and 13, we are introduced to something that is nothing less than a counterfeit trinity. A counterfeit trinity. You're introduced in chapter 12 to the dragon, who is Satan, who counterfeits, of course, God the Father. Then in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, you're introduced to a beast out of the sea. He's more popularly known by the word Antichrist. Now, it's very interesting. The word Antichrist never occurs in Revelation. Did you know that? Most people don't. The word Antichrist only occurs in 1 John and 2 John. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, 2 John verse 7. Now, Paul talks about the same individual, but he calls him the man of sin. All right? So, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist, the letters of John, the beast out of the sea, same person. And, of course, what does the Antichrist do but counterfeit the life and ministry of who? God the Son. Then we come to where we are now, chapter 13, verse 11, and we're introduced to another beast who comes out of the land, but later in Revelation he is called the false prophet. And, of course, what does he do but counterfeit the ministry of God the Holy Spirit? Now, look at what it says there of him in Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a what? Lamb. But it spoke like a dragon. In other words, the false prophet looks like a friend. The false prophet Looks like he's on God's side. He, he has the appearance of a, of a lamb. But all of us in this room know the familiar saying, don't we? Looks can be what? Deceiving. Now, you listen to me. Let me be very personal this morning to make my point. I have been involved in ministry now since I was 20 years old, 42 years. I am licensed. I am ordained. I have a bachelor's degree from a Bible college. I have a master's degree from a seminary. I have a Ph.D. And this morning, I'm standing behind a very nice pulpit, and in front of me is a Bible. But here's the deal. If what I say this morning does not match up with this book, you should reject me as a false teacher. I don't care what my credentials are. It doesn't matter that I have a website. It would not even matter if I'd written a 1,000 books and I was all over the world. If what I say does not match up with the Bible, I should be rejected as a false teacher. On the other hand, 
if what I say this morning does match up with this book, you have an obligation both to believe it and to obey it, not because of Danny Aiken, but because Danny Aiken has been a faithful messenger of the Word of God. Now, folks, listen to me. Please hear me. There are a lot of false prophets out there. There are a lot of false teachers out there, and they, they, they are standing behind pulpits today. Some of them wear really nice clothes and have really nice smiles. But if you take what they say and try to line it up with the Bible, they have no contact whatsoever. And I, again, I, I grieve sometimes at just how naive and gullible God's people can be. It's just it's shameful. God has given you his infallible and inerrant word to judge every teaching by, and yet some of us just refuse. I don't know if it's because we're, we're lazy. I don't know if it's because we think truth doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that so many people today are deceived by false teaching because the preachers look like they're on our side. They claim to be on God's side. The Bible says looks can be deceiving. Don't pay attention to how they look. Listen to what they say and ask the question, does this line up with God's inerrant word? Now, go back to chapter 5, and we're going to stay there for our remaining time, the next few minutes. Look at it again. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. That speaks of his resurrection. But he looked as though... He had been slain. You say, what does that mean, Danny? I I speculate here. I believe that in heaven today, there is the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ. And I believe today, and well for all of eternity, you and I, when we get to heaven and we get to see him, we'll see that even in his glorified humanity, there will be scar prints in his hands, There will be scar prints in his feet. There will be a scar at his side as an eternal reminder that without the shedding of his blood, there could have been no forgiveness for our sins. Oh, he he looks as if he has been slain, but he is standing. And then comes some of the most difficult phrases in all of the Bible. He had seven horns, and he had seven eyes. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Now, he's slain and he's standing, but now he's going to talk about his strength, his searching power, and his sovereignty. Let's unwrap these three images very quickly. He has seven horns. Now, what in the world does that mean? A number of years ago, I was asked to do a prophecy conference at a church in Texas. And on that particular morning, I decided to preach from Revelation chapter 5. And as I got in our car, our van to go home, uh, my boys were sitting in the back talking among themselves. And Jonathan, one of my twins, said, Daddy, uh, we didn't like your sermon this morning. Well, that's not exactly what you want to hear from your kids. And so I said, well, guys, what, what did you not like about my sermon? And they said, well, it was okay until you got to that part about Jesus having seven horns in his head. And we don't like that. That, 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 that bothers us, and if, and if Jesus has seven horns sticking out of his head, we don't know if we want to go to heaven or not. So I looked at their mother, and she said, no, you pick the text, you take care of things. So I got no, I got no help from her, none, none. So I began to 
think real quickly, and this is the best I could come up with, but it, but it worked with them. I said, well, guys, l- let, me, let me say it to you like this. Who is our favorite professional football team? And without hesitation, they said the Dallas Cowboys, because we were living in Dallas then. They were born in Dallas. Dallas Cowboys. I said, that's right. We love the Cowboys. I said, now, are they really Cowboys? And they said, well, no, Daddy, they're not Cowboys. They're football players. I said, that's right. They're football players that we call Cowboys. Now, why do we call them Cowboys? And they thought for just a moment, and then they said, well, because Cowboys are tough. Cowboys are strong. And I said, that's exactly right. That's what we hope our Cowboys will be. They haven't done much of that lately, but we hope that they'll be tough and, and strong. And I said, so what you need to understand is this. Horns in the Bible are often symbols of power. Seven is the number of what? Perfection. So you put together, he has perfect power. He's all-powerful. We use the word, he is omnipotent. That's what the seven horns mean. Well, look at the next phrase. And he has seven eyes. Well, what do eyes do? They see. Eyes are the primary means whereby you and I gain knowledge. So eyes, knowledge, seven, perfect, put together. He's all-knowing. He's the omniscient one. And then the most difficult of all, I think, These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, we know there are not seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit of God, and yet the number seven speaks of what? His perfection, His completion, His fullness. And look at where He goes. He goes into all the earth, so He is everywhere present. In other words, this is just a beautiful a pictorial, symbolic way of saying that God the Son, the Lamb, is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. In other words, He's God. And because of who He is and because of what He has done, He and He alone can do, verse 7, He went and He took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. One man, in reflecting upon these two verses, sat down and wrote this little poem. Mary had a little lamb. His soul was white as snow. And everywhere the Father sent, the lamb was sure to go. He came to earth to die one day, the sin of man to atone. And now he reigns in heaven above. He's the lamb upon the throne. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of victory. And number three, Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Verses 8 through 14 record three beautiful hymns that are sung in heaven. One is sung by the saints. One is sung by the angels. And the other is sung by all the creation. I'm going to walk through it very, very quickly. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, those angelic beings of worship, and the 24 elders, the redeemed, they fell down before the Lamb. They were holding a harp, that's the instrument of praise, and also golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So they dropped to their knees before the Lamb, both in prayer and also in praise. And verse 9, they sang a new song, a new kind of song, a new salvation song. And here's their song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why is he worthy? Four reasons are given. Number one, for you were slain. Number two, by your blood, you ransomed, you purchased, you bought people for God. From where? 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's Revelation 7 language again. Number three, you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And number four, looking to the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth, they shall reign on the earth. So the saints begin to praise the Lamb for who He is and what He has done. Well, the angels are not going to sit on the sideline and watch. Verse 11, I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. We heard it a moment ago, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. The Christian Standard Bible says countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Now, don't get bogged down trying to answer the question how many angels there are. There are a lot. Just pay attention to what angels do. Verse 12. And they were saying, they were singing with a loud voice, and here's their song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive what? A sevenfold blessing, a perfect benediction. To receive power and wealth, wisdom and might. Stop. You can't give God any of those things. You can't give the Lamb any of those things. He has all power. He has all wealth. He has all wisdom. He has all might. But you can't give him the last three things. You can give him honor. You can give him glory. And you can give him a blessing. It's the Greek word eulogia. We get our word eulogy from it, and it just simply means a good word. You and I can say a good word about Jesus as long as he gives us life and breath. Well, All the creation now must get involved. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, there's God the Father, and to the Lamb, there's God the Son, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, so be it. We agree. And the elders They fell down and worshiped. And some of the older translations have the additional phrase, they fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. If in the next few minutes before we dismiss, uh, those doors back there were suddenly to open, and coming down here and being here before us was your your governor. Uh, Whether you agree with his politics or not, he's the governor of Texas, and it would be right for us to honor him and acknowledge his presence here. I certainly would, would be in favor of that. And you know, for the next few moments before we dismiss, the, the doors were to open, and walking down here and standing in front of us was the President of the United States, Donald Trump. Now, whether you agree with his politics or not, he's our president. And it would be right for us to acknowledge uh, his presence with us. I, I personally would, would be in favor of, of standing and applauding because he is the president, and God calls us to pray for those in a, in, in, that are elected officials, those in authority, to pray for them and to honor them, and I would be all in favor of doing that. But you know, for the next few minutes before we leave, suddenly here in front of us was the Lord Jesus. My goodness, to stand would be so inadequate, and to stand and clap would almost be arrogant. See, the only rightful response in light of who he is and what he has done is what we read there in verse 14. They fell down. 
And they worshiped him who lives forever and ever.